Thursday, January 18, 1906. Mr. Bracey has said to me on his arrival, wouldn't I consider going to the funeral this afternoon? What funeral, I asked. Judge Virgil Alberson, a former county judge and old uncle to young Morton, the red-headed musical carpenter who's been working on our house. Raymond and Margaret and I passed the Alberson house on one of our drives. I never knew him, I say. Wouldn't it be thought odd of me? Curious was what I meant, for I longed to go. These are the times to learn a people. On the contrary, Bracey assures me, it would be taken as a compliment. I decide to go. Bracey himself is dying to go. Indeed, he says he feels he ought to go. Yes, he's going anyhow. So I ask him to dine with us and go in my buggy. Before dinner, I have taken the needless precaution to change my blue serge for black silk out of respect for the dead. I saw every color of the rainbow at the funeral, and I bade the two visitors to bring chairs out onto the porch near my table. Bracey begins to talk insurance. He represents the English and American companies. Will insure me for $2,500 if I either take the top off of the observation or build the chimney up higher. I've always meant to take the top off, but this is a procedure that breaks Bracey's heart. It's also quite necessary to have someone sleeping here or the insurance is voided. I have arranged this with Fielder. Peter announces dinner. Tomato soup, roast pork, Spanish omelets, highly appreciated, cream potatoes, peas, rice, onions smothered in cream, hot biscuit, coffee, apple pie, chocolate cake. The meal ordered for 12 o'clock gives great satisfaction. The funeral is said to be at one o'clock. Won't we be late? Surprises me that they aren't likely to begin on time. It'll be two or half past. And so it proves. I sit out without a notion of where I'm going, but it's to Lake Lindsay, with which church I now feel on tolerably intimate terms. We see the various tethered horses and wagons and buggies, just as on Sunday, only more. A funeral is evidently a great social event. I recognize John Bishop, he helps later to fill in the grave, and young Hedick and Miss Hedick, and faces I have seen on Sunday. Are we early, says Bracy? It's after two. No, there's the coffin in that wagon under the red cloth. And so it was. And up comes Miss Bishop, sister of John and Bone and Jim. She has some grimy hymn books in her hands, a book called Praise and Triumph, and she asks Mrs. Lowry and me to help in the singing. We all follow the crowd into the graveyard, and addressed quite good by the old Methodist preacher. A lizard crawls up Mrs. Lowry's skin and is politely whisked off by the bidgemaster. The lizard next ascends Miss Bishop, but even this humble ambition is thwarted. It is flicked off. It next essays my skirts, and I am the object of some solicitude. I can't see it, and I wonder if its next manifestation will be up my leg. I even imagine myself into feeling it, but I know all the same it isn't there. We sing some hymns after the address, and I share a hymn book with Mrs. Lowry and sing the ones I know. Sweet by and by, Jesus, lover of my soul, etc. As I stand there in the sand and flooded by that hot sunshine over the grave of that old judge, in that strange company of shirt-sleeved, coatless men, women in their gay Sunday clothes, and children of all ages barefooted and clad, babies good or restive, I suddenly feel the strangeness of my being here so sharply that I almost think no scene I ever took part in struck me as odder contrast to the rest of my life. And yet, I didn't feel out of it. I liked and respected these people, and I felt that they might come to like me. 
There were three chairs in which the old women sat. In the foremost one, the old widow with a rusty black hat drawn far forward over her brown leather face. The mouth open and an occasional audible crying, but all quite seemly and controlled. Near her, supporting her by his presence, our red-headed carpenter Lad Morton, nephew of the deceased. At the close, the faded wreaths are deposited in the high sand mound, heaped up and made smooth with the spades of John Bishop and another. The parson is presented to me, says he's going to write up our house for Louisville. This after I've bidden him to see me. He's the editor of the Brooksville Argus. Then Ernest Snow comes behind me and says, Mr. Baker's here. Would you like to speak to him? I say I've already done so yesterday, but will again. I'm led to him, and he renews his compact to appear here tomorrow. I'm presented to John Bishop's wife and two daughters and to others. I have asked Mrs. Lowry to come back by my place and bring the girls in. It is agreed we will meet there as Mr. Wepley wants me to drive to the Morgan house to see his chimney. So he and Bracey and Butterwick and I do so. Arrived at Chinsega to find the Lowrys on the upper veranda. On the way, Bracey tells me Ernest Snow has said to him that Raymond told Snow he would buy Snow's place. 200 acres said to be valued at $3,000 with house, barn, etc., lake frontage. Snow had refused to consider it at the time but was ready to do so now wanted to go live in Brooksville. Ernest, says Bracey, is a happy-go-lucky fellow so long as he can hunt and fish. Bessie Snow, who is said to be in Brooksville with erysipelas in her foot, was at the funeral, so Bracey says. He tells how smart she is at housework, would get breakfast for eight men before dawn, goes miles to school, comes back and gets supper. The sister Maud suffers bitterly at the passing of the old home into other hands. She's had differences with her brothers and is, in Tampa, clerking. When Bracey was for telling her what we were doing to the old place, oh, don't, she said, never speak of it. I never want to see it again. Back at home, I start off with the puppy Buck. When along comes Lizzie and Laura, so we all go down the hill in the red sunset. Tonight, instead of a flock of brilliant red birds down in the thicket, I find four cows drinking in the brown leaf hollow wherein lies the blessed little spring that I so love. It looked quite beautiful to see the cows drinking there in the mellow light, Buck squeaks, so I have to carry him. Up to the house, Laura carrying Buck this time. I give the children candy and oranges and good night. I take Buck, who squeals to be taken up to the graveyard chinaberry tree. Underneath it, Fielder has put a seat for me to watch the sunset. Buck and I are there while the light fades, and from the kitchen wing comes the sound of fiddling. Red-headed Morton and Yancey are shaking off the funeral influences of the afternoon. I'm here this morning with Blake Bell and Bruce Snow, and uh, we're recording this in 2023, and Blake, you are the new mayor of our city, but you are not new to this community, so why don't you just explain your family connection to Brooksville and uh, what brought you here today? Yeah, thank you, Natalie. Uh, My great-grandfather times four, Francis Etterington, came to Hernando County in 1851, with Anderson Mayo from Fairfield County, South Carolina. They were in search of fertile land. And in 1851, bought property from Bert Pearson 
and built a home then the next year with his family. Uh, but that is uh, kind of what we talk about and what we'll be talking about today. But actually, um, some of my earlier family turned into county was the main family. And they came here in the 1840s around the same time as the Crum family and the Hope family. Mm-hmm. And the main family would have been here right at the beginning of Florida statehood and very, very, very rural Florida at that time. Mm -hmm. So um, that is how I am a seventh generation Brooksvillian and uh, 18 in the 1840s would have come here um, also looking for fertile, fertile land. Very cool. So Bruce, you would be one generation Prior to that, what is your connection to Blake and what's your connection to the community in general? Well, good morning, uh, Natalie. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, um, and again, as you indicated, my name is Bruce Snow. Uh, I was born in, in Brooksville. Uh, I've been practicing law in Brooksville for over uh, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, Blake is my sister's uh, uh, youngest uh, uh, child. Uh, uh, so that's my connection uh, with uh, Blake. I think it's interesting uh, to kind of expand on his comments, uh, talking about the, the uh, various family members, the Maines, uh, uh, the Edderingtons, uh, who had come to Hernando County in the 1840s, by and large. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that uh, that Florida was every uh, much the wild, unsettled uh, territory uh, within a new nation uh, uh, that the Wild West was. Mm-hmm. You know, we grew up, everybody, about Westerns and the West, right. the Western movement, uh, how that uh, people from uh, the original colony started moving West and uh, how they had to fight the, the elements and uh, the, the nature and the geography and, and uh, the, the, the Indians. Uh, uh, in order f- for them to um, uh, find new places to, to live and new homes. Well, Florida was during that same time period. People just don't think about it being in that same time period. Uh, Florida was basically unsettled. Uh, there were a few little settlements, uh, perhaps around uh, Jacksonville, Pensacola, but that was about it. Uh, but you also had that Southern movement uh, where people began to move to Florida. Uh, to find, as Blake indicated, fertile land for growing their crops, uh, for raising uh, the cattle and things of that nature. But uh, the same challenges existed for those people that had moved, uh, were moving into Florida as those that were moving west. Mm-hmm. Uh, had the Seminole Indian War where, you know, there was uh, the, the threat of, uh, of that type of warfare. Um, but you kind of add on, Florida had some hostilities from a geographic and from mm-hmm. a, uh, mm-hmm. a ecological standpoint that the West did not. Right. You had swamps, you had, uh, uh, you, you had just the subtropical type of uh, situation with uh, uh, various diseases and, and, and those type of things. It made it very hard for those early settlers to move to Florida in order to make homesteads. Right. I mean, you look at the fatality rates and they were 
it was really pretty astonishing to live any kind of length of time because of that. And I think um, I'd always told the story since I started telling the Edderington story in 2015 about that journey from South Carolina, from their place there. But um, it wasn't until I watched the recent, I think it's 1883, I always get the year wrong, um, prequel to Yellowstone and watching that wagon train out west that I realized, oh my gosh, that's exactly what was happening with the Edderingtons and the Maines and the Mayos as they were coming in because there weren't roads and there was not a clear path to get here. So you get to a river and you've got your piano in your wagon what are you doing with it you know and um you know precious Anne was pregnant at the time and and that baby is the first um gravestone over at the chinsegat property and um so i do think that we we forget how what a big risk it was to make that change do you have any insight into what would have made them leave a comfortable life like that in south carolina well i recently was in fairfield county south Mm -hmm. carolina i made a trip there which um, was phenomenal trip. I had heard about it, you know, growing up my whole life about Fairfield County, and I've recently been in touch with the genealogy society there. And doing some research um, on the Edderingtons and the McCowans that were there and the Mayos that were there, and uh, it, my understanding is a lot of South Carolina uh, farmers during that period of time were overproducing on their on their land. Mm. So they didn't understand the need to take breaks at that point. Um, uh, Agriculture was big business, obviously, back then. And because of that, they wanted to uh, grow as many crops as they could, as often as they could. And by doing that, um, they overused uh, their, their, their land. And at that time, it became more difficult to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is why Edderington, Francis Edderington, decided to look for fertile land in Florida. There were also incentives, as we know at this time, by the federal government for um, really agriculture-based uh, families to move to Florida. They wanted to populate Florida, mm-hmm. the new state of Florida. So there were incentives as well um, from the federal government for families to move south to Florida. And one of the treasures I think that we have is Anderson Mayo's um, diary that he kept while uh, Francis and Anderson traveled from South Carolina to Florida for the first time. Mm -hmm. Um, You can still go to the train station where they would have gotten on the train to take it from Fairfield County to Columbia from Columbia then down to Savannah, from Savannah by boat to Jacksonville, from Jacksonville on wagon, horse, and at some point on you know foot mm-hmm. because there were certain terrain that they could not you know, navigate except but on foot. So uh, that journal that was kept in 1851, which is still intact today, is a treasure because we, under, we, we get a real glimpse of what it was like for them to travel down south um, to rural Florida. And it's interesting um, because Fairfield County obviously was an established community. Mm-hmm. Um, there would have been a lot of social events, established churches, established government, um, South Carolina being an older state than Florida, obviously. So you have these people who are living in um, 
a, a very established um, society, leaving that established society, mm-hmm. coming to a very, like Bruce was saying, rural um, area that had a very new government at the time, uh, did not have a lot of infrastructure at all. The churches, some of the churches that were around at the time were being burned by uh, some Native American groups. Mm-hmm. Um, we know one of the early churches the Mains went to um, had to be rebuilt because it was burned to the ground in one of the disputes between the Native Americans. So it was a hostile area. So right. you're going from um, you know, a relatively easy life mm-hmm. <laughs> in South Carolina to now a very rural, hostile land called Florida. Yeah. Bruce, would you clarify for us the relationship between the Mayos and the Edderingtons? It's, uh, I think, it's actually, as Blake had, uh, had indicated, uh, uh, there was a friendship that had existed between the, those two families uh, mm-hmm. up in uh, the South Carolina uh, area. And uh, they kind of separately uh, agreed that they were going to come to, to Florida, in particular Hernando County uh, uh, and uh, Francis uh, Edrington uh, had, had moved into a, a portion of Hernando County that uh, we now know as uh, Chinsigid uh, Hill mm-hmm. and uh, the Mayo family uh, that uh, they came down s- similar times and uh, uh, they uh, kind of located uh, on a hill uh, north of uh, what is now referred to as Chinsigid Hill. I like to call it uh, uh, snow Hill, of because you it do. was Snow sure, Hill sure. before it was uh, Chinsigat Hill. Right. Uh, but uh, the Mayos settled on the hill to the uh, to the north, which they called Mayo Hill. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's now called Snow Hill. Uh, <laughs> so uh, can't have all the hills. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it, there was just that uh, historic relationship uh, of those two families that were close, and right. to the point that they were both willing to move to to Florida at the same time. Uh, kind of uh, uh, convergent uh, uh, lives that that uh, that then saw their their lives continue to to merge as uh, it, it, you know some of the Edringtons uh, and uh, and their descendants married some of the males and their descendants. Mm-hmm. Well, and it makes sense too if you're going somewhere so remote to take a friend with you. You know, we have a letter from Precious begging her brother to come, and um, so the Nevits end up here. But uh, just the isolation would have been. Pretty astonishing, and, I would think. And, and Natalie, while we're kind of on that uh, topic, uh, uh, Dr. J.R. Snow, uh, mm-hmm. uh, who married one of Frances Eddington's uh, daughters, uh, came about you know, 10 years later okay. uh, after the Civil War. Okay. But I think it is interesting to, to note that uh, from, again, that side of the family, the, the Snow side of the family, that... Uh, I know Blake had done some uh, some research on on the Snow side of the family, uh, in addition to the Edrington side of, of the family, and uh, was able to uh, uh, trace uh, the Dr. Joseph Snow and therefore his heritage, my heritage, back to uh, uh, the late 1600s when uh, when the Snows came from England and settled in uh, the United States and settled in South Carolina. So. Uh, uh, we kind of uh, have both maternal and uh, paternal uh, relatives that go back to the uh, to the pre-revolutionary days of uh, of the United States. That's amazing. One another thing 
to add to the um, Etterington-Mayo connection, Anderson Mayo was married to a McCowan. Mm -hmm. um, so because of that, when they came to Hernando County, she also wrote her McCowan family, just mm -hmm. like Precious Ann wrote to her Nevitt family and asked right. them to come down. Um, the, some of the McCowans at that time also came down to Hernando County following Anderson Mayo and his wife. Okay. Um, I can't remember. Annie, Annie. Annie, mm -hmm. Annie McCowan. And um, so the McCowans then come down. And because of that, you have this new community, you know, called Lake Lindsay. And all of them really lived in the Lake Lindsay com community. And from those families, you have, um, you know, snows that come out of those and Hales and McCowans and um, Hancocks, Billingsley's, Walls. McKeithen. McKeithen. Kimbrough. Kimbrough, Bronson. But then from that, um, a snow then marries a McCowan, and then that's how we then con get connected um, to Anderson Mayo. Anderson Mayo obviously isn't a grandfather of ours, but would have been a great uncle through Ernest Snow marrying Cora Maine McCowan. In Elizabeth's diary entry today, um, we're at a funeral in Lake Lindsay at a church, and a lot of the names that you just mentioned are going to appear in that entry, including your great-great, however many great-grandfathers, Ernest. So not only do you have uh, a lot of families that end up interconnected, but then Ernest himself is going to have 18 kids. So um, let's talk a little bit about Ernest and what you know about your great-great however many great grandpas. I grew up uh, hearing him called Papa because I think that's okay. what he was affectionately called um, throughout probably most of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, Papa with 18, you know, children, I think 13 or 14 lived to adulthood, but then a slew then of grandchildren, right. obviously. Um, we know that Ernest stayed on the property after uh, the property was sold to the Robbins. Mm -hmm. And we know that because uh, of Elizabeth's writings, mm -hmm. affectionate writings yeah. about Ernest and uh, what appeared to be a friendship between right. the two of them. And uh, we know that they stayed up there till 1920s, uh, 1920, um, when they moved a little bit north, about a mile north to what then was called Hungry Bend. And um, just a, uh, uh, I've always been told and heard from people who knew him that he was kind of a Gentile uh, soul, mm -hmm. a, a true Southern gentleman. Um, his brother Mallory, what seemed to be the politician and mm -hmm. kind of the the uh, maybe larger than life uh, brother, and then Ernest was kind of behind the scenes, the quieter, more reserved one. And we do have a picture that Elizabeth um, took of mm -hmm. the men in front of the manor house, and and you kind of see that in the picture. Right. You know, you kind of see what Mallory looks like and you kind of see what Ernest looks like and you kind of get their personalities, I think, in that picture. But we'll have that picture on the website. That's great. Episodes, yeah. So people can see that. Um, Ernest, um, his role for Elizabeth was to help her understand rural Florida. Mm -hmm. She, I don't think to my knowledge, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but had ever owned a farm before. No. So she, he helped her to 
you know, plant mm -hmm. and to manage a large property in a large manor house. And, um, you know, thinking back, Elizabeth didn't have children. Right. And you have Ernest, who had children with his first wife. Unfortunately, she uh, died in childbirth and then with his second wife. So they have a whole bunch of young children's children up there on the hill. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth, not only did she enjoy the scenery of the hill and, mm -hmm. and, and the quietness, but then, you know, they're not her children, but you have children on the hill right. that she was able to enjoy as part of living up there as well. Um, so Ernest, I think, was a crucial part in helping Elizabeth um, make the property into what it is today. Right. Yeah, I mean, she she just was kind of looking at it as almost like a cabin that she could kind of go and camp out at. And um, her brother had very different ideas about making it this big farm operation, but didn't she had no idea how to do that. And Ernest was huge with that. Go ahead, Bruce. Yeah, to, uh, to the point uh, of uh, Ernest Snow, uh, who was uh, Ernest and Mallory, they were uh, uh, both children of... Uh, Dr. Uh, J.R. Snow. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mallory Snow actually became uh, the clerk of the court in Hernando County. Uh, Blake had mentioned the, that uh, Mallory had been a politician, uh, obviously uh, was in government, uh, was a popular individual. Uh, Ernest uh, was the farmer of the family. He also had a construction uh, uh, business and uh, uh, it was involved in the construction, the original construction of uh, what is now U.S. 41, okay. uh, using teams of horses to uh, to build the uh, uh, the highway. Uh, wow. So go back to that part of uh, that history too. And it's interesting that the takeoff on your podcast today is uh, Elizabeth uh, uh, and her connection with uh, with Chen Sigit, and uh, you know the the. The, uh, the connections that we're talking about uh, from the standpoint of uh, the Edrington family, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the Mayo family, the Snow family, et cetera, moving to Hernando County, settling in the Lake Lindsay area, uh, what is now known as Chinsigat in the manor house there. And if anybody listening to the podcast has not been there, uh, I would encourage them to go to uh, Chinsigat Hill mm -hmm. uh, to go visit the uh, the manor house. Uh, it is a un unique experience in uh, in Florida. Yeah. It's one of the few remaining, if not the only remaining, uh, uh, large plantation style uh, uh, houses left in in Florida. It sits on top of one of the highest hills uh, in mm -hmm. Florida, and some just beautiful scenery too. Right. So uh, there's also that that history. And that history certainly goes back to the Edwin family, uh, Mayo family, the Snow family, et cetera. And it's probably beyond the scope of this podcast, but uh, uh, the Snow family uh, who had uh, last acquired the property uh, from our perspective, sold it to Colonel Raven Robbins, uh, uh, who then moved there. Uh, and along with his sister and his wife, that property then became almost a, a national gathering spot uh, right. under the uh, influence of the Robbins, uh, people like uh, uh, Edison, uh, uh, Helen Keller, J.C. Penney, uh, just numerous famous national personalities would gravitate 
and come to this unique location at uh, what is now Chinsigat Hill and would visit and would socialize and uh, and would talk politics and things of that nature. So uh, that history we're talking about has a flow both before and after, which I think uh, has a very uh, powerful connection. Absolutely. So let's go back a generation. So the uh, Ernest was the son of Charlotte and J.R. Um, how many kids did they have? And uh, let's talk about Charlotte and, and what she ends up doing on the property following her parents' death. So let's cover that generation a little bit. Yeah, so Charlotte moved with the family from Fairfield County when she was seven years old. Mm-hmm. So she would have made this long trek with the family the oldest uh, child of Francis and Precious Ann when she was seven years old and her mother was pregnant at the time of the mm-hmm. trek. So I'm sure she was helping her mother and right. you know, giving her mother a, a steady hand on that, on that trip down from South Carolina. So they get to uh, Hernanda County and for a short period of time, they live in the home that the um, Pearsons had occupied while they're building the manor house. So, so Charlotte sees and probably remembers seven years old, uh, the house being constructed, yeah. the house being built. So that was impactful for her as the oldest child. And her siblings probably didn't have that much memory of the house being built, but yeah. Charlotte did. So I think that makes the house uh, even probably more important to her. Then at the age of 21, Charlotte's father passes away. Uh, the year after uh, the Civil War ends. At the age of 24, three years later, Mm -hmm. her mother passes away. And at this time, her mother had a one-year-old daughter, had just had a one-year-old daughter named Precious Ann. So at this time, Charlotte uh, becomes the head of the house. Mm -hmm. And she had five minor siblings who she cared for. She Um, would be charged with running the manor house. She would be charged with running the estate, the Mm -hmm. property. Um, And to think about that now, a 24-year-old single woman in rural Florida, Mm -hmm. post-Civil War, uh, when there's still hostility, as we know from history going on, um, running successfully this manor house and this property, it wouldn't be until three years later that she meets Dr. Joseph Russell Snow and then mm-hmm. uh, marries him and has her own children with him. But she raised her five siblings that were um, still minor and um, just a very strong woman to be able to do that during this period of time and not only do it and survive, but also do it and be successful in it. And, um, then she goes on for about two decades to teach at Lake Lindsay School. Mm-hmm. And she taught a host of um, local Lake Lindsay um, uh, children there and um, had a number of children with um, Dr. Snow, including Ernest Mallory, um, Maude, Bessie, mm-hmm. um, Quinn. Quinn. Yeah, there were seven altogether, I think. I don't know if they all survived, but there were seven. Well, and I think, too, just for the audience, if you haven't been to Chinsegat, this is, you think, okay, she's running a farm, big deal. People did that all the time. This was a major operation. Um, Francis, her dad, had 
an extraordinary business that he was running. And I think just to scale it for you, um, besides the farm, he was also lumbering the property. And there is one shipment that he made to New York to the Faber Pencil Company that in today's money would have been a third of a million dollars. So this was not like a hobby farm. This was a major, major operation. Bruce, Huge I can tell you are yeah, chomping I, at the bit. Yeah, I'm on, <laughs> I, I would like and uh, should sing it in Florida to Yellowstone uh, yeah. in uh, Montana yeah. or Wyoming. Uh, yeah. uh, is from the standpoint of the scope of the operation, mm-hmm. uh, uh, should sing it was kind of Florida's uh, Yellowstone. Uh, like you can be uh, <laughs> Mr. Dutton. Uh, there <laughs> With a bit better moral. And your sister, there you go. your sister can be Beth. <laughs> but I think I think Francis had it up to about 1,600 acres is what I've read by the time um, he passed on. And then, of course, the Robins will grow it to about 3,000 by the time they start negotiations with the federal government and they give 2,000 of that to the government. But um, this was not this was not a hobby farm. And I just I think um, that that's important to reinforce because this was a very young woman taking on a household and maybe the biggest business operation in the community at the time. Yeah, and uh, interesting, if you go to Lake Lindsay Cemetery where a lot of the Edderingtons and Snows are buried to this day, there's an area where uh, Charlotte is buried alongside Dr. Snow. And then three or four of her sisters are buried around her, including Precious Ann, who I think was probably a special sister to all of them, if you look at her gravestone. Fortunately, she died at 21 while she was off at school. But um, Barilla, Ettering, sorry, Barilla Etterington uh, Hancock, Hancock, she married a Hancock. She was raised, She was nine years old when her mother died, so Charlotte then would have cared for Barilla from the age of nine on to the time that she became an adult. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because Barilla's gravestone, and this is even un- uncommon for a gravestone, uh, reads Bar- Barilla Eugenia Hancock, um, daughter of Joseph and Charlotte Snow, which wow. just, I think, um, it pays tribute probably to um, Charlotte helping to raise her, even though she was her sister, called her her mother, um, because Charlotte not only was running what you noted was probably the largest business operation um, in the late 1800s in Hernanda County as a single woman, um, but also helping to raise, not helping to, raising her, you know, five minor um, siblings who had just lost their mother. Let's touch a little bit more on on life at Snow Hill, as it was called at the time, uh, the Snouchinsigit. Um, so we know that there had been some cotton. There are a lot of the crops that they were used to in South Carolina. Um, and it's JR that, I believe, introduced the citrus. Um, what, what would daily life have been like? for Charlotte and, and those men, and Mallory and Ernest, and you know anything that you know about the farming life of that time period? Well, you have to keep in mind, I think, uh, in the prelude to our conversation, this moment in our conversation is mm-hmm. that uh, this was back in the, in the 1800s. So, you, you know, you did not have uh, modern equipment. You did not have modern farming equipment. You didn't have tractors. You didn't have, uh, you know, so much of the the modern farming uh, uh, tools, et cetera. Uh, 
by the same token, within the house, houses, you didn't have electricity, you didn't have running water, uh, uh, you didn't have the modern conveniences of the day. So mm-hmm. just to survive, uh, you know, it took a lot of activity and effort and energy uh, just to do your, your daily chores. Uh, but then to have a, a farming uh, operation of that magnitude, uh, uh, it took a lot of work. It would have been a lot of clearing that would have had to have gone on in order to plant uh, uh, the crops, whether originally cotton, but uh, ultimately this area wasn't, wasn't a good location for, for cotton. So mm-hmm. other crops were uh, were more appropriate. Citrus was incorporated mm-hmm. uh, uh, into the operation. That was a large component of the, uh, of the operation. Uh, so it was very labor intensive uh, uh, operation. And one thing we do know about Ernest and his work with the citrus industry, he created some of the first grafting of um, different types of citrus. So um, in the early, you know, they had the freeze in the late 1800s. At that time, they were trying to think of different ways to create stronger citrus that can mm-hmm. survive, out, out survive or survive. Um, uh, freezes and, and make a hardier citrus. So he was one of the first to really play with the uh, grafting of different types of citrus to create new, you know, forms of citrus. Yeah, to, uh, Blake makes a, a strong point in that regard. Uh, you had to figure out ways in order to be a successful farmer. And uh, if you just planted a, uh, a sweet orange that we are familiar with today, you planted that tree uh, in central florida there would be times that uh, freeze would come along and would kill uh, the entire tree and that that's not very good for farming uh, uh, obviously uh, and uh, he realized that there were some native orange trees that were in the nature of what's called a sour orange tree uh, but wasn't uh, cultivated but the sour orange tree was a hardier uh, tree though the wood was hardier so he uh, came up with the idea of taking that sour orange tree, the, uh, the native orange, and then to its rootstock, grafting the sweet orange uh, onto the uh, sour orange so that then the woodstock would be strong and hearty, but yet the, uh, the, the fruit that was produced would be the sweet orange. Tastes a little better. Yeah, and some of those sour orange trees are still up uh, there on still the property love as sour well and still, and still going in strong. Florida, so people driving along, yeah. they see an orange tree, and man, look at that nice, uh, beautiful orange. They right. pull it off and shake <laughs> it by it, and it's pretty sour. It so. is very sour. It's great for marinade, though. I'll say that. Um, Jed, let's just touch briefly on JR. Um, so we know that he was a dentist um, based on his military discharge papers. And um, I was on site during the second archaeological dig at Shinsegat when they found a red rubber dental guard um, that would have been the proper time period for his his lifetime, um, and which also proved to us that the dental practices haven't changed much over 150 years. So is there anything that you can tell us uh, about JR's art practice? Well, his one of his great-grandsons, um, Jay Hypes, is mm-hmm. a dentist today, and Jay actually has the um, original measuring tool that Dr. Joseph Russell Snow used when he was practicing dentistry. 
which also speaks to the fact that um, teeth have not changed right. <laughs> <laughs> at all. Teeth. Uh, yeah. A tooth is a tooth. Uh, but, you know, growing up, and I'm sure Bruce heard this as well, my granddad would talk about uh, the dental chair that sat at the manor, in the manor house, and they would play on that dental chair, dentist mm-hmm. chair that was Dr. Snow's. They would, I think, um, spin around sure. on the dentist chair. And, um, you know, we also just living in the community where um, people went to see Dr. Snow, heard, you know, stories about that. But um, yeah, you had uh, Dr. Snow who had been uh, uh, trained uh, in the military uh, uh, to be a a dentist. And from what I understand, actually, some of his training also included uh, uh, medical practice, uh, particularly uh, battlefield uh, uh, treatments and things of that nature. So uh, once the war was over and he came to Hernando County, uh, he obviously was able to continue his dental practice. And uh, indications are from time to time there would be people in need of of treatment of a nature beyond even what you might think of today as classical dental uh, treatment. Um, And, you know, a lot of Industry uh, hasn't changed. A lot of, thankfully, has changed. Uh, uh, Blank uh, mentioned uh, uh, his cousin Hypes that's a dentist today. But uh, uh, I also remember when I was growing up uh, that uh, Dave Hedick, referred to as Uncle Dave Hedick, who was uh, who was uh, related through uh, the Hedicks that uh, that Ernest knows first wife was a Hedick. Mm-hmm. Uh, until she passed away during uh, childbirth, uh, and uh, her uh, her brother was a, a dentist also, and had his dentist practice in Brooksville. Right. And I remember going to him as a young man as a dentist, and uh, uh, some of the even those techniques were kind of <laughs> barbaric. I'm thankful for modern dentistry. Well, and. David Hedick's practice was in what is now the Snow and Bell building, is that right? Or was he in the Main Street Eatery? I think early on might have had a practice in the Snow and Bell building, but then he moved to... He, his, his practice, when I was where I was in, 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 the late, uh, in the late 50s, was uh, at his residence okay. at, the, uh, at the corner of Bell Avenue and I believe Oak, Oak. near what is currently Hernando High School. So uh, okay. that residence is still there, uh, but his dental uh, uh, practice office was in his residence. Uh, by the same token, when I was growing up as a kid, mm-hmm. which wasn't that long ago, <laughs> there, were, there were two doctors in all of Hernando mm-hmm. County. Wow. There was Dr. Harvard and there was Dr. Creekmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Dr. Creekmore was probably well in his 80s and really didn't practice much medicine. Yeah. So all of Hernando County effectively had one doctor in the, the late 1950s, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Harvard, uh, Dr. Creekmore, also his medical practice was in his uh, residence. Okay. So, you know, a little spin off on just some of the aspects of early uh, uh, dentistry and medical practices in Hernando County. Right. So we've um, covered a little bit that when Elizabeth's brother Raymond was here for a little bit as a kid, um, he talks about Christmas parties at the at Snow Hill that the Snow family was having. Do you have any insight into that? 
Well, I I know that the Snow family, um, the reputation was they were extremely giving people. And growing up, my granddad talked about um, families would come to their home to eat. You know, there were times that and during this period where um, people didn't always have, you know, a hot meal mm-hmm. to eat. And they were fortunate that they had land to farm that they always had food to eat and oftentimes um, people were invited to their home just to eat Mm -hmm. Um, and I know also growing up uh, my granddad would get a call from Aunt Lizzie um, who lived there at Chinsigat and Mm -hmm. um, she would uh, around Christmas time would call my granddad even until his adult years and say it's time to bring me my Christmas present (laughs) Um, and he uh, would go up you know to the hill and take Aunt Lizzie her her Christmas gift and um, I, but I think it was probably a little bit more of her opportunity to visit with him sure. as well because if you think about it Aunt Lizzie not only knew his mother but would have known his grandmother Absolutely. and yeah. his his, his great grandmother and um, being the midwife for all of those snow children she would have had a special place in her heart for all of them mm-hmm. And, um, but the, the, the Christmas parties, I think probably were a part of a larger, um, entertaining that the snows did oftentimes for, um, not only family, but for people in that community to, um, to be a place where they could have a warm meal, Mm -hmm. hot meal. Yeah. I mean, back in that period of time and particularly unique to, uh, the families at that time, the Edringtons and, and the Stowe's, uh, uh, having the, that property, having a large operation, having, uh, you know, growing both crops and, uh, and, and money crops and having uh, livestock. Uh, they had the resources in order to have celebratory mm-hmm. uh, feast, if you would, celebratory dinners. And that was very common, uh, uh, whether it be at Christmas, which would have been a, a time of great celebration, uh, uh, and people within, um, you know, miles around would be invited uh, uh, to those events. But by the same token, uh, similar uh, celebratory uh, uh, feast or eat parties or whatever you want to call it uh, uh, would occur throughout the year, uh, whether it be at, uh, at traditional, a little bit later, cemetery cleanings uh, where, uh, where once a year families would gather at the cemetery uh, there at Lake Lindsay and uh, the relatives, the ancestors of all the different families that were buried there would come and there would be a, a huge uh, uh, celebratory uh, dinner on the grounds, if you would. So that was part of the culture at that time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you don't see that as frequently today, but, but there was that coming together and that gathering uh, uh, that uh, further generated the, uh, uh, you know, the connection between those individuals, uh, the commonality of their ancestors, the appreciation of their lives, and uh, the hope of uh, the lives of those that, of those that were living. Well, and Raymond Robbins, had, you know, he was kind of a big city kid, right? Mm-hmm. So coming to coming to Brooksville and seeing all of these people congregate together, right. you know, uh, small. It was a small town feel, right? And mm-hmm. I think that's what really Elizabeth and Raymond probably fell in love with was the small town feel right. of Brooksville, which 
is is not any different from what we see today Correct. and why people fall in love with Brooksville today. Yeah. And I think I think especially the snows represented for him what he had been missing in his own life, which was a real strong family unit. You know, he'd been shipped away from his parents when he was three years old and the siblings were kinda of all over the place. And so, you know, the word chinsigit means place where lost things are found that was the whole point is he was trying to find home and i would imagine that the snows were a big part in that of him seeing what it was like when your family's all together and loves each other um i want to talk a little bit about the 1890s um, because that was a really difficult decade for the snows and actually for brooksville and a lot of florida as a whole so you had the the uh Orange freeze that we've talked about a little bit in 94 and 95 that killed off a lot of the citrus, but also the snows kind of brought some hope to the community at that point because a lot of their trees survived because of the altitude and they were able to replant a lot of what was going on in the city where everybody lost everything. Um, But Charlotte also passes away at that point and then we're going to have a tornado spurned by a hurricane that comes through. Yeah, well, we know when the hurricane hit or the tornado hit the home, um, the snows then moved to what it was referred to as the West Side Manor. Mm-hmm. When I was a young boy, the West Side Manor was still there. Um, and it unfortunately in the early 2000s was knocked down, but they, they continued living on the property. And you know that everywhere in the South, everywhere in Florida, mm-hmm. obviously was having, uh, uh, it was a struggle during that period of time. Um, and but as we commented earlier, they were hard workers mm-hmm. and that's what kind of was in their core to be hard workers and the family together, they were hard workers. And because of that, they were able to grow crops on their land and they had um, you know, farm animals that they were able to um, you know, use and, and, and to eat and um, they never went hungry. And that's mm-hmm. something that my granddad always talked about, um, being thankful for the land because um, he saw people around him who were at times going hungry during this kind of tough time of Florida history. And they were always fortunate to have food on their table. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think they were thankful um, for that yeah, that uh, 1890 uh, uh, period uh, uh, kind of an indication that life, even though you sound like you have a huge uh, plantation and a lot of acreage and you have a large operation, that that nature and the force of nature can change things in a hurry. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah. uh, you know, you had the tough freeze that killed so much citrus in that period of time. Um, and then later on, even in the modern days in the 1980s uh, you saw other freezes throughout Florida mm-hmm. that uh, uh, that impacted the citrus industry in, in Florida it was a day again uh, in the 1960s you could drive from Brooksville to Orlando and uh, you get in the Groveland Claremont area mm-hmm. all you could see from miles on end were citrus uh, wow. uh, trees and uh, when they were in blossom, the, the, the aroma of the uh, orange blossom was just a sweet aroma, but the freezes uh, killed those trees too. So mm-hmm. that's always, nature's always been a challenge when you have those type of things. And 
again in the 1890s that impacted the citrus industry uh, and it was fortunate that uh, the combination of the Chinsigan Hill uh, trees where a lot of them were able to survive and were used then to restock a lot of citrus within Hernando County and a lot of Hernando County citrus then survived again up until uh, the you know, 1980s, it was a very large industry in Hernando County uh, mm -hmm. for a long, long time. So uh, hopefully uh, the contribution of, uh, of our ancestors from Chinsicket in those days was able to have uh, contributed to that. Um, and, uh, but it did cause economic hardships uh, from a financial standpoint. And then when the tornado comes along and lifts up uh, the manor house and uh, actually turns it, I think, eight degrees from its foundation. Uh, just the combination of uh, events led the family at that time decision uh, when Colonel Robbins came along to, to sell the property to, to Colonel Robbins. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the snows that, uh, that were living there uh, uh, moved to the manor house, still on top of Chinsigan. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Blake's grandfather, Arthur Leroy Snow, known mm -hmm. as Roy Snow. My father was actually born on and at the Manor House. So he was actually born on Chensigan Hill. Mm -hmm. So I people say, well, Bruce, why do you have such a connection to the history uh, of Chensigan Hill and uh, the history of Hernando County? And I tell people today, the molecules of my DNA, Absolutely. they, they <laughs> are generated within the soils of yeah. uh, Chensigan Hill. So uh, it's not just a concept. Uh, I think I'm organically uh, uh, predisposed to have an appreciation for that history because uh, my, my DNA uh, uh, has uh, its, its origins in, that, uh, uh, in those soils. I love that. So that is a perfect lead-in to what you think the ongoing contribution to the, the community that Snow Hill has been, why it mattered that the, the snows were there. One example of service and um, an example also of faith. Uh, we know from the Etterington family and the Snow family, there was um, this, this appreciation for service, service mm -hmm. to the community, um, service to the country. Uh, many of the uh, men from the Etterington and Snow families went on to serve um, in different wars and became highly decorated, including my granddad, um, which we're obviously very proud of. But then throughout the writings of the Etterington and Snow families, you see this tie that binds them together, and that's a tie of faith. Mm -hmm. um, very, very, very religious people who depended heavily in this um, new venture that was uh, Florida, um, their, their belief in, in God and, and their dependence on their faith um, got them through a lot of, of tough times and good times mm -hmm. as well. And, but that um, faith created a moral code that um, transcends now into their descendants who um, are still here today. But, you know, some of the names, for example, that come out of those lines that I think a lot of Hernando County people still remember to this day, Alfred and Bud McKeithen, who gave back tremendously to this community and to Florida. Yeah. Um, Roy Snow, who served as a long-term time county commissioner, as did 
um, Jimmy Kimbrough Sr. Um, Bruce was the county attorney, probably the longest serving county attorney in Hernando <laughs> County history. Um, Mallory Snow, who was a long time uh, serving clerk of court. He was also the property appraiser mm -hmm. in Hernando County. Um, there have been judges that um, came out of that line from the Wall family. And um, you think about Hancock Fruit and you think about um, the different families that have impacted this community. And then you think about the Snow Daughters um, who uh, were business leaders in 1940s, 50s, 60s. Uh, Brooksville, uh, young women who um, um, kind of uncommon for them to be such strong business leaders, right. especially in Brooksville at the time, but you had Juanita Snow Rogers who had a very, very successful um, clothing business in town. You had Ernestine um, Snow who, along with her brother, owned the very successful lumber yard. You had Maurice Snow who was married to my grandfather who was a business executive and helped um, really steer Snow and Bell mm -hmm. um, to become what it is today. And um, you had a number of women who were very strong uh, business leaders, but also community leaders and church leaders um, during that time period. Women's and club leaders. Women, yeah. They, yeah, presidents <laughs> of the women's club and, and things of that nature. And that legacy, of course, still lives on um, today. And, you know, I'm proud, obviously, serving on the Brooksville City Council and currently serving as mayor. But when I'm serving on the council, I look to my right and... Um, another one of Francis Etterington's grandsons um, uh, serves on the council alongside with me, Thomas Bronson. So, you know, I think um, Francis Etterington, we're here today. He'd be proud that two of his grandsons um, serve now on the city council when he came here in 1851. And now 2023, two of his grandsons are serving on the city council. Natalie, um, you, you look at the broad brush of, of history, you, know, you can have an appreciation that uh, uh, going back however far you want to, but even with the founding of America, you had uh, people from Europe uh, that decided that uh, they were going to leave uh, the civilized world in Europe and come to America before it had been settled, uh, the pilgrims uh, and uh, those laters that came to, uh, to settle in America where there was no uh, you know, just the raw land and the, the natives that were here and the courage and the bravery of those people saying, I, I, we want to go there and locate there and, uh, and uh, make lives for our, our families. We want to uh, be able to uh, have the, the liberty to, uh, uh, to exercise our faith. To, we have the freedom to, to live our lives free from tyranny. Uh, we, we're willing to suffer those hardships, and we can, we studied in history the hardships that uh, uh, that those early pilgrims suffered. But yet, from those hardships, we see what a great land uh, uh, grew out of that. Uh, later, we talked about uh, those that left uh, the eastern parts of the United States to go west, where again they were to face all kind of uh, hardships when there was nothing there other than their hopes. And you see the individuals that uh, that built communities and built lives the same way then within Florida, as we talked earlier, those individuals willing to, to leave a more civilized, uh, developed uh, area to come to a wilderness and to uh, take and 
change that wilderness into a productive community, con productive lands uh, to build a community. That really uh, is a commentary on the power of the human spirit. I think we all then can draw courage and strength looking at history, looking how that power of the human spirit is that can face hardships, can overcome difficulties, and yet through hard work and through zeal mm -hmm. can face those things and can be successful and build a community. And that's the same thing that we can do today. What a beautiful way to close that. And I would say that anybody who has benefited, like myself, from this community um, and the county and even statewide and, and nationwide in some ways, it was a great debt of gratitude to the Snow family for what they did and the bravery of, of coming through and making that, making that sacrifice for themselves so we all could benefit. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. I know everybody is going to love this content. Thank you. Well, that uh, historic uh, uh, expression, uh, we now stand here with open arms and welcome those who, uh, mm. who come uh, today. Very good. Thanks, Natalie. Thank nice you. to be here. Thank you, Natalie. Snow family members understandably still feel a deep connection and love for the Chinsegat estate, even 118 years after it passed out of their ownership. Snow descendants will go on to local and state leadership to become war heroes, to teach and preach and mentor and serve. They will participate in countless more funerals of families and friends in that little lake, Lindsay Church. The manor house would be repaired from the tornado damage, and the citrus orchard would be replanted. But that is a story for another podcast. Thank you for listening to the Elizabeth Robbins Diary Podcast, a creation and production of Brooksville Main Street, a nonprofit focused on economic redevelopment through historic preservation and placemaking. This podcast is made possible with the help of a generous grant from Florida Humanities and the brilliant minds of our guest experts like Mayor Bell and his uncle, Bruce Snow. Would you please consider following and rating the podcast? By following us, you'll be sure not to miss an episode and rating is a super helpful way to help us spread the word and support all the hard work of the following people. Life Thomason of Odd Life Studios produced this content as well as editing, mixing, and mastering it. Tom and Patria Dye opened Profound Revelation Studios in downtown Brooksville, allowing us to create this content right in the heart of our city. The docents of Chinsegat Hill Historic Site and Andrea Reed generously provided research support and advice. Barry Mindel of Debar Design created our lovely graphics. Elisa Baybor of Roots Creative Co. designed an amazing website and social media. Randy Olson of Live Oak Theatre wrote and performed our theme song, Time is Whispering. Vail's Library of New York University for access to Elizabeth's collection. Those resources are quoted with the kind permission of Independent Age, a registered charity number 210-729. Find out more about them at www.independentage.org. Special thanks to Florida Humanities for assisting with funding the podcast, especially Lindsay Morrison, who believed in the project when it was just a spreadsheet and a dream from the little city of Brooksville. And of course, Elizabeth Robbins, who provided us an outsider's perspective to the Snow family and to Brooksville life at the beginning of the 1900s. I sat on the front porch at Chinsegat, transcribing the diary for this episode. 
imagining the visit of the Snow Hill Band and the Snow Kids chasing each other around the lawn. It's an honor for me to executive produce, write, and host this telling of this story. May our generation continue to create hopeful and lovely memories here to add to the story of this hill.